Dear fellow redeemed, we consider briefly our reading from John chapter 13, um, especially verses 34 and 35. And as we begin, looking at this portion of God's word from Holy Thursday, the night before Jesus was crucified, and it's shortly after Judas has left We don't know if it's before or after the Lord's Supper. We don't know if Judas was there or not. But that doesn't matter. Because Jesus used the same standard as you or I, going by Judas's confession of faith. That if Judas was there, he had verbally confessed and and was presenting himself as a Christian who believed in this Jesus. But now after he leaves... Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And then those two verses, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, love one another, just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And those words are easy to misunderstand, distort, or be driven along by, those words are simple enough, simple enough words, but their meaning as to what this looks like in the Christian life is a challenge. And I would say that at large, the Christian church at large has not done a particularly good job of demonstrating the difference that we see here. And why in particular that this reading comes up on the fifth Sunday of Easter. Take, for instance, when you're heading north in, um, in Minnesota from I-90, which basically goes along the bottom of Minnesota, and then you're heading north to the Twin Cities. It's about two hours. <laughs> and before you get to Cabela's, there's this gigantic sign. Love God, love people, and then whatever community church it happened to be. The name doesn't matter because they're basically interchangeable. Love God, love people. And a few times when I had to make that trip for a variety of reasons, whether for, um, for something fun or for a hospital visit and visiting somebody in distress, that sign would jump out. That sign would kind of stick in the mind. And I kind of doubted its influence on my life because, you know... <laughs> Who in the world drives past a billboard and has that change the way that they think? Until a few weeks later. And a good friend in the congregation had said, well, that's the essence of Christianity now, isn't it? Love God, love people. How much simpler could you get? And I had to pause and I stopped for a minute. I'm like, well, friend... We've talked about this. I know that I've preached about it, that the essence of Christianity is not love God and love people. And if we had a billboard along the interstate, that would not be be what's on the billboard. Love God, love people, that's the essence of God's law. That's exactly what God commanded for his people in the Old Testament and exactly what Jesus summarized in the Sermon on the Mount. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Exactly what God summarized when he had spoken to that rich young man. And love your neighbor as yourself. 
That young man who thought that he knew what God said. Love God, love people. No. And you can see that in the Christian church. You can see that in in every other church body or every other worship type organization in this world. Every other religion has some, some way that the follower, the believer, is supposed to love their God and demonstrate love toward people. That's not unique to Christianity. It's something that is written on the heart. And so, yes, the next Sunday, I didn't didn't use his name, obviously, um, but I said, well, the essence of Christianity is this Jesus. The fact that, that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, and there's no other God, by the way, the second person of the Trinity joined our humanity in order to suffer the punishment that we had earned. That this second person of the Trinity now continues to distribute that forgiveness through his word and through his sacrament in a way that is, that is free and open to all. That the essence of Christianity is this Jesus laid down his life for all people. And that this Jesus continues to distribute it freely. That this Jesus is the one who, who sends his spirit to create the faith that receives that forgiveness. That the essence of Christianity is not love God and love people, but it's that Jesus loved us. And we know that. And thinking about it for just a few moments, you might see how that makes things different here. You might see how that message of love God and love people in all of its various distortions might be found in other religions even, in other church bodies. So then what do you do with... John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are also to love one another. If Jesus is the essence of Christianity, and his life, death, and resurrection is what makes Christians different and makes our faith different, then what do we do with this? Where Jesus says... Love God. Love people. By this, everyone will see that you are different if you demonstrate love for one another. And that concept, that concept is, it's everywhere in our world today. The idea, the belief that, that God is all about love and that our, our, uh, our obligation in this world is to demonstrate love. Because the question isn't just, what do we do with the words of Jesus here when he's really laying out the path of God's law? But what do we do with the words of Jesus here when those words are distorted or even taken up as a banner, as a belief, by those who don't subscribe to and believe in the resurrection of Jesus? What do you do with these words here, verses 34 and 35, When that whole concept of love is paraded and even pushed toward Christians. As if to say, dear Christian, you need to to demonstrate your love in this particular way. It's in the politics. I mean, 
I probably don't need to name all the examples, but if you just watch the news for a little bit, I encourage you not to do that, but if you were to watch the news for a little bit, you would see, and you would hear it, that this is the loving thing to do. That we live in a Christian nation, and we ought to act in a way that is loving. And here is the loving path that happens to align with my personal politics, that happens to be the platform that our politician stands on. But the obligation is on you, dear Christian, because Jesus said, Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And it's that underhanded, almost unstated accusation that if the Christian doesn't demonstrate love in a particular way, or if the Christian doesn't, doesn't support a particular platform in exactly the way that, that somebody else believes, then that Christian is, by extension, being unloving and denying their faith. Have you felt that quandary, that tension? It's enough to make you want to, yes, throw the TV out the window and, and all the other electronics and maybe, you know, take up life in, a, in some sort of a commune or a monastery, I don't know. Get away from society as if that were the problem. But it's not. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Because the problem isn't with the way the world distorts the words of Jesus. The problem, the problem is right there, even in our opening hymn. And you kind of get the impression, oh, we're talking about love today. And all I want to do is go back to that confession of sins and add to it. How can, how can any of us talk about love in a full way? How can any of us really look at the words of Jesus here and say, yes, that, that's me, that, I, that is definitely me. I have demonstrated love to everyone in this world, both those who are close to me and those who are opposed to me. I have demonstrated love in such a way that everybody would gladly say, there goes a Christian because he or she acts and lives just like their Jesus. And we hear that opening hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And it's like, I wish and I hope that is the case. But knowing our own hearts, it's difficult enough to live in a way that is loving toward others, live in a way that lives up to the commands of Jesus, and live in an unbridled joy of the resurrection when in actuality we look at ourselves and we look at the world around us and, and it would be so easy, it would be so easy to fall into what the world says we ought to do. Support this cause, adhere to that politic, do this particular action so that I can assuage my guilt that I am loving enough to be worthy of the name Christian. It's kind of multifaceted now, isn't it? Because we're talking about the emotions of the human heart 
that express themselves in action. That the world around us, which by and large um, has, has deserted the idea of some sort of objective guide that is a guide that is outside of me. And so the only truth that can be found is in my heart. And you see this, I mean, you see it politically, you see it spiritually, that there's two ideas at both ends of, of the spectrum. Either truth is found in external words, or truth is found as it is laid out in a constitution, and our job is to interpret those words and apply them, or the other option, that truth is to be found in the human heart and in human emotion. And once somebody experiences an emotion, then that is the end of the discussion because you, the external observer, cannot speak to their internal truth. And you start to mix all these things together. And all of a sudden, the words of Jesus look to be a little bit more challenging. Because there are those who would, who would use the words of Jesus to, to try to pull the wool over the eyes of Christians so that Christians feel obligated to support their politics. You see the words of Jesus, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, and we know our own hearts. And we know the truth that you know, sometimes the, the affection isn't there for, for our enemies, much less our loved ones to say nothing of the action that, that Jesus encourages here. That love is only demonstrated in action. And then um, another layer, that the confusing aspect, is that we believe in these external um, firm and certain words that are then applied to our lives. But we live in and operate with and, and know and love people whose only guide for their life is what they feel at the moment. And really, the bottom line, how is it? How is it that anyone could know that we are Christ's disciples? And how, even on top of that, how are we to, to demonstrate love to a world that has no concept of Christian love? How are we to demonstrate love when Jesus enjoins us to love one another and we know that that is, that is a, a word of the law? How is it that we are to provide a clear Christian confession to a world that is confused about everything from the very beginning of life all the way through its God-given end? How? Jesus. You say here, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. And it's that only question of how. Not just how should I act in a loving way, but even more basic, how am I able to? How can I? And that's where we began today. That the new command Jesus gives here isn't isn't a command that says, live up to this, and if you do, then. If you do, then God will be happy to you, with you. But this new command is a command given to new people. 
a command given to new people because of his work there at the baptismal font. That we talk here in the context of the empty tomb, of that empty tomb so beautifully pictured behind me, and what was left buried and crushed inside. Well, all of our attempts to be loving that fell short, all the times when we compromised our Christian confession in favor of outside approval, what is left crushed and broken inside that tomb, all the times when our love has been less than word and less than action, and maybe we just go through the action but the heart isn't there, all of the half-hearted times when we have tried to demonstrate love to our fellow Christians, or at the very least try to demonstrate some patience with those who do not understand or do not see life the same way that we do. What do you see as we gather under the foot of the cross? This very one suspended here. You see your fellow Christian who has also been bathed not just, not just in the waters of baptism, but in the blood of Jesus. You see fellow Christians who struggle with the same things that you do, maybe carry the same guilt or regret that you do, and yet the same fellow Christians who stood up and confessed today I confess that I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, and what I've done and, and what I've left undone. Fellow Christians who have been buried with Jesus and raised with him in holy baptism as a spiritual, actual reality. That all of the regret that you and I carry, and even all of the selfish motives that are so easy to, to disguise with our words or our actions, all that sin that so often just kind of lurks in the background where we can ignore it? All of it. Carried by this Jesus. So that you can know with, with certainty that just as certain as he was raised from the dead and his physical body, hands and feet, still bearing the marks of the nails, as he walked about in those 40 days after the resurrection, that is the same truth about you and about me. That the new command that he gives to love one another is not in order to earn God's favor as this harsh, punish, punishing judgment of the law. If you do this, then God will love you. But this new command, as given to new people, is the result of having been made right with God. And quite frankly, your opinion about your lovingness or your lack thereof, doesn't matter. Quite frankly, even though we ourselves, we see our motives, and sometimes we see in reflection um, how our actions or our words were less than loving, and we see the distortions of Christ's words in the world around us, and all we're left with is this regret that we aren't loving enough. But your opinion about your sin doesn't matter anymore. Grant that it leads you to confess that sin. That's what we do. That's, um, that's even in the front part of the blue hymnal. And I mentioned this to, to all of our new confirmands, and I try to mention it probably you know three or four times a year at least. 
that one of the reasons why Jesus wanted me here was so that you would have a pastor, not just, not just you and the Lord, but also somebody who could sit with you and who could read through this confession and absolution in the front part of our hymnal together with you and who could verbalize that even as, even as the person who confesses maybe confesses something that they had never confessed before, as the sin and the shame of the past month or years or decades is aired into hearing for the first time ever. Pastor, <laughs> this is what I've done. That Jesus called me here so that his spiritual words could also be spoken to your sin and mine. That this Jesus has carried your guilt and your shame. That this Jesus has raised himself from the dead in order to guarantee your forgiveness. And that this Jesus has said that you don't need to carry the guilt and the shame anymore. That the new command that he gives to you isn't one of cringing and, um, and worry and distress. But the new command is given to new people who have been raised with Jesus in holy baptism, who have been washed with his blood in the Lord's Supper. This new command is a new heart that he has given and that he has promised to create and continue to, to nourish within you. So that it is actually possible for the Christian to consider their motives clearly. That we don't have to be, um, we don't have to fall for the lies of the world around us that if you are a Christian, this is how you should act. The lies of the world around us that the only truth, the only, the only item of substance that I can hold on to is the feeling of my own heart. No. We confess an objective, historically accurate faith. And the objective, historically accurate word of God is applied to your life and mine with spiritual power there in holy baptism and here in his supper. That when Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another, that's spoken in the context of people who are made new of people who know what that objective and outside of us word of God is, and of people who find joy, even joy in admitting where we have fallen short because this Jesus has carried our sin. Where people find joy in unity together, not as a, uh, not as a museum for saints, but as a hospital for sinners. Where people find joy, not in how far they have progressed, as much as how much Jesus has done in them, through them, for them. That this Jesus has said, dear Christian, this is what makes you different. Him. This is what makes you different. His life for yours. His washing of you in holy baptism. This is what makes you different. His body and blood for the forgiveness of sins again. So that you can leave your guilt there and leave your shame there. And walk out that door. Carrying a, a new command. Because you are a new person. 
carrying a new command that says, this is, this is a joy. And this can be a joy. Because my Jesus has done everything. And even when you lay down your head at night, and maybe you shake your head and say, well, <laughs> did it again. But thanks be to God that this Jesus has raised himself from the dead as an object of reality, that this Jesus demonstrated his love for us in such a way that it wasn't just some far-off feeling in the heart of God, but that this love put itself into action by doing exactly what you and I needed. That this love put itself into action by providing for you and me exactly what we needed most. Forgiveness of sins and new life. And so that night before he was betrayed, Jesus was thinking ahead. Yes, even to you. But thinking ahead to the reality that he would, he would do the work to make you new, to make you clean, to give you a new heart, and to set you free. So that as a result, you don't have to live life on the hamster wheel of trying to do enough. But you can live life as somebody who's been made new and has the joyous path of our God to say, there you go. Live as this new person. Amen.